I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Up next on The Trade Guys, China hits back, Export Council recommendations and investment, not trade, says the Biden administration, all on the next episode of The Trade Guys. Guys, I'm back. And here's the deal. China seems to be hitting back in the chip war. And it's over something called gallium and geranium. So, Bill, I want to ask you first, what are these things? Well, first of all, Andrew, a small correction is not geranium, which is a flower. It's germanium. Germanium. <laughs> Okay. Which, which is a metal. Germanium. I mean, they're both important items, but we're not talking about geranium. No, I can't even say it. We're not talking about geraniums here. We're talking about germanium. Germanium. Yeah. You know, it's getting harder for me to read in my old age, Bill. And to be honest with you, I couldn't tell you what a geranium is versus germanium. So it, it's really the same question. Germanium and gallium are both uh, metals. They are both relatively soft, silvery looking metals. They are interesting in that they don't occur, and this is relevant to the discussion, they don't occur naturally. They're the byproduct of refining usually zinc. In the case of gallium also, um, or germanium also. Bauxite, yeah. Bauxite. Aluminum. So you refine zinc or bauxite ore and turn it into zinc metal or aluminum in the case of bauxite. And then what you've got left over is a bunch of other stuff that includes germanium and gallium. So these are sort of, in that sense, kind of artificial metals. They are useful in some high-tech products. Germanium is used in solar panels and fiber optics, including night vision goggles. So they have a military application. Germanium is transparent to infrared radiation, and that makes it useful for night vision. A gallium is mostly used for making uh, gallium arsenide, which is a chemical compound, which is used in radio frequency chips, mobile phones, and satellite communications. And so therefore, it's a key compound in making uh, semiconductors. So these are, you could say they're critical minerals, but they're not critical minerals like lithium and stuff that you have to dig out of the ground. You can make them, and you make them from relatively common stuff. You know, we're not short of bauxite. We're not short of zinc. And in truth, we don't buy all that much from it. Last year, the U.S. imported $5 million worth of gallium metal and $220 million worth of gallium arsenide. That's million with an M, not billion with a B. Germanium, we bought $60 million. So this is not quite the same as some of the other things that people have been panicking about. There are other people that make them. Belgium, Canada, Germany, Japan, Ukraine manufacture Germanium, Japan, South Korea, Ukraine, Russia, and Germany make gallium. And there's also, I don't know what they are, but there are also other substitutes that you can use for these things. So it's kind of different. And I would say, you know, carefully chosen by the Chinese, which they always carefully choose when they, when they retaliate. And make no mistake, this is retaliation. They won't say that publicly. I think they'll probably say it privately. If you have private conversations with them about Micron, 
they'll say it was retaliation, even though the government denies it. This is retaliation, and I think it's artfully chosen to hurt us and not them, which is what their retaliation is usually aimed at. They're really good at figuring out stuff that won't have a big impact on them. So it's a relatively small amount. It's not going to cost their exporters a lot of money. It complicates our life because we need it for chips, not just our life, but other people's lives. We need it for chips, but there are workarounds. Now, getting to the workarounds will take a little time and it'll probably cost more money because we'll have to go somewhere else. One of the, the accusations of the Chinese for these metals is that they've been suppressing the price in order to capture market share for them. And they do have, I think, what was it, 83% of the market for one of them. So they've, they've done a pretty good job of capturing large market share. And some people have argued they do that through price suppression. What that means is if you need other sources, you're going to have to pay more. So prices will go up. I mean, this is inconvenient, but it's not fatal. So, Scott, inconvenient but not fatal. Why is this such a big deal then? Like, if we can make this stuff ourselves, or we can get it from our allies, why should we care that China is cutting us off now? Well, think of this as a test market. China often does this in trade retaliation or, or uh, to send messages, well, however you want, to, you want to, uh, determine that. And they've chosen something that will make things, it'll be annoying and it'll be difficult. And I think the price suppression that Bill talked about is real. There are substan substantial cost advantages that China has because of scale, but there's also, they're just bargain basement pricing this stuff, which is how they got an 80-some percent share of gallium and a 60% share of the world market of, of geranium. Germanium. I'm sorry. I, I did the Nutella mistake that I promised myself I wouldn't. Yeah, it's and germanium, <laughs> apparently. What's this I hear about geraniums? Why can't we just call it geranium? The, but, but look, we're going to have to go with the people who make this now. And keep in mind, countries like Japan make very high quality germanium and gallium that is really the most useful in these particular high-tech applications. So the best materials come elsewhere from elsewhere now. They will have to scale up which is going to put pressure on, on the industry. It'll put price pressure on, uh, on the companies that buy this as, as part, of their, part of their manufacturing process. So we're just going to have to adjust. But it is a, a carefully chosen, I think, by the, by the Chinese to, to see how, how disruptive things are. And I don't know what the next step is, but there will be one. Okay, so the question is, is how is the United States going to react? Well, I think what you've got here is sort of parallel tracks. They're retaliating. I don't, I don't, I think we are, there are rumors that we are going, long-standing rumors that we're, there's, there's going to be another shoe dropping on chips um, and mm -hmm. on uh, related export controls. Um, I don't think that's a response to gallium and germanium. I think it's the U.S. refining its controls from last October. They've discovered a loophole uh, which I think we may have talked about before, which is the cloud services loophole. The point of last October's rule was to deny the Chinese advanced chips, uh, a lot of them made by NVIDIA, that were useful for AI applications. And what Chinese companies have discovered is that if you lease cloud services that use those chips, because it's the cloud provider that has the chips, not the Chinese. But if you're leasing the services from the cloud provider, which would be something like Amazon Web Services would be an example, but not the only one, uh, you can get around the restrictions. You know, you can access the chips without owning them. 
So there are rumors that uh, the U.S. may uh, plug that loophole, which would be interesting because they had previously concluded a couple years ago, not recently, that they were not going to control cloud services, that it was difficult to do that. So this would be if they go down the road of, of trying to control certain cloud services, either by end user. So tell the cloud, you know, we, we, see a full disclosure, we wrote a critical questions piece on exactly this subject and listeners can get it off the Shoalshare website. Um, you know, one way to control cloud services is by end user. And you tell the cloud providers, you can't provide your services to Chinese company X or Chinese company Y, or you could control it by chip and say, you can't provide services that use these chips or at least to those end users. I mean, we'll see what they come out with. There are multiple ways to do it. There are also rumors that they may expand the controls on chips directly. One of the other things that happened, uh, and this was entirely predictable, is, you know, when you draw a line, people are going to produce something that is slightly below the line. And that's what NVIDIA did. You know, uh, what the U.S. did in October was slap controls on the A100 chip. And a few months later, NVIDIA announced the A800 chip which is operates at a performance level below the line of control, slightly below the line of control. So that's a market that I assume is doing well. And what the Chinese, uh, what, what the uh, U.S. government might now do is adjust the controls to pick up that chip. So there is more to come, but I wouldn't say it's retaliation for Gallium. It's uh, on the U.S. own initiative. And keep in mind, it's not just the U.S. involved here. Uh, there's a very sophisticated Dutch company, ASML, it was a spinoff of the of Philips Electronics, but they're in the, the most sophisticated end of lithography, which makes basically draws the, the circuitry for the, the tiniest chips. It's a very important company to the production of high-end uh, integrated circuits. And the government of Holland just announced new restrictions on exports of certain equipment from ASML, which which is, there's really not a good substitute at the at the at the mo the tiniest end of of uh, chips size. Yeah, I think the, I think the tool controls have been is a, probably uh, more important to this project than than the chip controls. I mean, mm -hmm. it's it's always been true in American policy that we control the stuff that you use to make things more tightly than we control the the thing the things themselves. themselves. Yeah, right. It's it's like the reverse of that old proverb. You know, give a guy a fish, you feed him for a day; teach him to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. This is a case of denying the, denying the tools, you're denying the capability. Denying them chip just means that there's one particular thing they can't do. All right, well, I suspect we're going to have to watch this one. Moving on a bit, though, the Export Council uh, has called on President Biden to order a government-wide plan for trade facilitation. I want to ask you guys, what kinds of recommendations did the council make? Well, this is uh, interesting. I think it'd be helpful to, for our listeners to step back and recognize that Congress created advisory committees to advise the government on trade policy uh, back 50 years ago. Basically, the Trade Act of 74 was where these statutory advisory committees were created. And they, they, they work at different levels. Many of them, then very important ones, are at the technical level for both industry and agriculture. But at the very top level, there are two committees which basically are, have on their representation chief executives. One is the President's Export Council, which is the one that made these recommendations. It is a CEO group that is, in the absence of the President himself, is chaired by the Secretary of Commerce. The other one is the ACTPIN, unpronounceable, but the Advisory Committee on Trade Policy and Negotiations, 
also CEO level, where the U.S. Trade Representative is the is the chair in the president's absence. But they're important committees. It's a presidential appointment to get on the committee. The advice is usually something uh, of a high level that's that's listened to. In this case, the PEC has made recommendations about trade facilitation. This is essentially the mechanics of how customs organization works work and and the the importance of standards in that process to make customs operations around the world as frictionless as possible, as consistent and predictable as possible. And it's very important for the day-to-day issues of trade. But it seems like a punting on third down, to be honest with you, Andrew, because usually the president's export council has an ambitious agenda for, surprisingly, exports, right? Yeah, let's, let's boost American exports. And they're always looking for ways to do that. For some reason, and I, I think it is the Biden administration's reluctance to embrace classic export promotion, that they're talking about things like trade facilitation. And it's not to say trade facilitation doesn't matter. It's just, it's a, it, seems, it seems like they underperformed here. And uh, Bill may have some further insight on this, but I was, it was like, wait a minute. You got CEOs talking about trade facilitation? I don't, I don't get it. I actually am not going to do a rant on this one. Oh, my goodness. Even though Scott said it's like punting on third down. I thought that was great. Me too. So you're not going on a rant. The tiny little bit of history here. This is actually uh, the first time in seven years the PEC has met. Uh, Trump ignored it completely. So the last time it was during the Obama administration. It has a long and distinguished history. It also has a subcommittee which I learned about when I was in the government because it's called the PECSIA, the President Export Council Subcommittee on Export Administration. At the time, it was the only standing committee of the PEC, and it made recommendations on export patrols. And apparently, the uh, one of the recommendations from the PEC meeting last week was to reconstitute that, which I think would be a good thing. But I would just say from an institutional point of view, these committees are important for two reasons. One is the reason that Scott cited They provide good advice, you know, and they provide good outside advice from knowledgeable people at the technical level and at the high end policy level. But they also are action forcing events. And for those of you that have been in government or are in government now and know the way the government works, when there's going to be a high level meeting, what the government does is say, well, we need to have something to announce. They need to produce something and we need to produce something. So these things become action forcing events. And every time the PECSIA had a meeting, when I was the undersecretary, which I think would be probably quarterly, you know, we would have to think of something to do and come up with a decision that would have to be made. And that sounds, you know, artificial. And at one level, it was artificial, but it's action forcing and it's healthy for government because the fact that you're going to be meeting with the private sector and realizing you have to do something as a result of that meeting is healthy. And so I'm delighted that it met again. And I think Scott is right that it would be nice to have a little bit more focused on how do we promote exports more? And that seems to be a missing piece here uh, in this administration's uh, panoply of, of trade actions. And it, it does baffle me because exports are win-win. You know, they're good for everybody. And you'd think that, you know, every other administration, both parties have said, you know, have tried to boost exports because they create jobs, they reduce the trade deficit, they produce growth. And the current team doesn't, they're not against them. To give them credit, but they don't really seem to be very focused on them. Well, they don't want to talk about them. And look, I understand their their shyness when it comes to imports. Imports are actually quite good for the economy as well, uh, but uh, because of the of import competing industries and pressure on jobs, 
in many cases, administrations don't want to talk about them, but they're always happy to talk about exports and opening markets abroad and those kinds of things. And uh, we got some, we're a little shy here uh, for one reason or another. Well, I have to say, Pexia sounds like a new drug treatment for hair loss. Well, in which case, I suspect all three of us would grab it. I think it's, I think it's too late for all of us. Ask your doctor about Pexia. <laughs> exactly. See it now. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. I just don't want to. I just don't want to hear the list of side effects in the commercials. The, so. Oh, the side <laughs> effects! My goodness. My goodness. Yes. Well, I'd like to think I'm not as far along as the two of you, but uh, the, camera, the camera is not flattering. Let me say that. Yeah. Well, you're getting there, but you're looking good. Um, speaking of trade. Deputy National Security Advisor Mike Pyle spoke at the Carnegie Endowment um, last week, and he said that the Biden administration's vision for for the global economy is not centered on trade policy. And he argued for the U.S. He said that the U.S. views investment uh, both domestically and internationally as a policy more fit to tackle current challenges. What about this, guys? Well, he's expanding the narrative. I've gotten to the point where I've been tired about writing about this. And I started writing about it. So I think my readers are tired of reading about it. I think what they've done is made a political decision that is designed to avoid intra-democratic party fights between the left and the center. And now what they're busy doing is dressing that up with a narrative that uh, is designed to rather elegantly provide a justification for what was a political decision. It's it's the old, you know, you could put lipstick on the pig, but at the end of the day, it's still a pig. And that's what we're dealing with here. The new element from, from Mike is it's not about trade, it's about investment. And that's, sure, you know, investment's important. Investment's always been important. And you can find CEOs going back 20 years who will say investment is important. And But they were talking about where they were going to invest overseas. And I think the problem with uh, with the administration's logic is, yes, investment is important, but most of their investment policy is aimed at restricting it, uh, not at promoting it. So we're talking about CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, which deals with inbound investment, applying more scrutiny to inbound investment, particularly Chinese investment. And we're talking now about a parallel facility that would regulate outbound investment. We haven't seen that yet. I participated in a briefing on it, which, among other things, revealed that it's not done yet, which made me wonder why they're having a briefing. But it appears that uh, it's intended to be narrow. There will be some areas, I think, where investment, outbound investment, will be prohibited. uh, And there will be more areas where uh, it will have to be reported. So investment policy to this administration appears to mean let's control foreign investment in both directions. And let's focus on domestic investment, which is what the IRA and the CHIPS Act are all about, which is fine. But I wouldn't say that focusing on domestic investment is trade policy. It's it's economic policy, and it's an important element of economic policy. It's an important element of industrial policy, and I'm all for it. But I don't think you can properly say that it's it's trade policy. Ask your doctor about syphilis. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. And whether or not cures are available for that yeah, disease. Uh, right. But uh, <laughs> in any case, look, Bill's got it right. And I would just uh, note one thing about the language, which is, and I believe this was Doug Schoen or one of the geniuses that worked for Bill Clinton back when he was president. 
is they figured out that people didn't like government spending, so, but if they called it investment, it was more acceptable to voters. And so there's a tendency to call government spending investment. We're investing in these industries, which you can debate whether it is or not. I mean, subsidies and industrial policy have their own baggage that they bring at the scene. But I think that's what the administration is really talking about here. There's not much connection to either international investment or U.S. investment abroad. Uh, so I, th I think that there's, there's a lot more justification of the infrastructure and green energy subsidies that are the, the administration has gotten approved by Congress and is out spending now. I think that's the investment they're actually talking about. But it strikes me that when you have a president with a 40% approval rating, according to Gallup, and a 32% approval rating on the economy, that you would basically say, oh, we're not going to worry about this part of the economy at all. We're not going to talk about exports. We're not going to talk about trade. It's not that important to us. If I were at 32% on the economy uh, and uh, the guys who advised Clinton, James Carville and Doug Schoen and those characters. Yeah, Mark Penn. That's a classic Mark Penn as well. Oh, yeah. It's a Mar Mark Penn. Yeah. The name I forgot. And he was he was one of those one of those that was so brilliant at communicating the president's message. But getting the mess the message right is important. I just see this as a disconnect. You're, you're, the economy is struggling. You know, household income is shrinking on an inflation-adjusted basis. We're, we're one big hydrocarbon push away from cost-push inflation carrying on despite what the Fed does. And so I think it would be better to, to look at all the available options, including trade and investment on an international basis, which tends to raise labor productivity which is the only thing that raises consumer incomes in the long run. Now, we're in a good position. The U.S. already attracts more foreign investment than any other economy. Foreign investment was, has been falling for a few years post-COVID, but we still get the lion's share of it. And U.S. investment abroad is still something that, that, uh, that many uh, globally engaged companies take part in. So let's make the most of it, is, would, would be my approach. But they, they, for some reason, there's there's... There's this uh, notion that we can just ignore this part of the U.S. economy and everything will be fine. Well, next week, guys, we're going to have to talk about Janet Yellen's visit to China. She's there now or on our way there now. Uh, so we'll have to mark that for next week. Long trip, but uh, she'll, I think she's probably on her way. You're right. Yes, it'll be interesting to see uh, uh, what she does when she's there. Uh, the rumor was that this was the trip the Chinese wanted, uh, and ultimately they recognized they had to do Blinken first if they were going to get the economic people. Uh, so I think they get uh, Yellen, and apparently they get John Kerry, too, who announced that he'll be going shortly, which is good, because that's one area where I think our two country interests uh, align. Uh, they align domestically and they align uh, internationally, and it's an area where we ought to be able to work together more effectively. Um, and I think uh, I think Yellen is widely Secretary Yellen, I should say, is widely respected uh, in China for a lot of reasons. One of which I think she's regarded as uh, uh, relatively more open-minded about China than other people in the administration. Uh, these days, that's not very open-minded, but it's still, you know, clearly, I think she has been the one inside the administration arguing for, uh, you know, putting the brakes on some of the. Uh, more aggressive uh, approaches that people have, have uh, tried to make. And certainly, I think, has been uh, someone pushing back 
gently on Congress and some of the rather peculiar things they propose to go after the Chinese. So I think she'll get a good reception. Whether anything concrete comes out of it, I would again be skeptical of. I mean, we fundamentally disagree with China on a whole host of issues. They are not going to adjust their economy because we asked them to. I suspect the best we will get, and maybe not even that, would be a some kind of a structure for future conversations. You know, we used to have this, that it was always called something, you know, the S and D, S E D, S N E D talks. Uh, it was a handy structure for dealing with grievances. And some of them, the Joint Committee on Commerce and Trade, which was back in the Clinton and, and George W. Bush administrations, they actually accomplished things, small things, but they were irritants that, that countries working together got to resolve. So there's a lot to be said for a regular dialogue, and I hope she comes back with a commitment to engage in one, at least on economics. Well, guys, another great week. Thank you very much. Thank you. We will see you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.